more of God from Exodus chapter 33 verses 1 to 4 and then 12 to 23. Now last week we looked at the previous chapter and the lamentable events that occurred while Moses was away for 40 days communing with God on the, on the mountain. In their impatience, they couldn't wait. The Israelites made the, the golden calf and partied pretty hard while Moses was away. So Moses intercedes for his people because God told him what was going on and uh, he was about to wipe them out. Now in the latter part of the chapter as Moses actually physically comes down and sees the aftermath of what happened, he carries the the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets and he smashes them. And then God judges his people. Now this morning we continue to look at the fallout of all that transpired. But we come with a wonderful and unexpected result. And the lesson is, the lesson is this, that all the things that happen to us and in us is, is, is meant to, to draw us closer to God. To want more of God, not less. So for this reason, Exodus 33 is, is for me, one of those very special chapters in, in all of Holy Writ, in all of Scripture. Here we see Moses, the man of God, in deep communion with God at a crucial stage in the pilgrimage toward the Promised Land. So to set, to set it all up, let's look at first of all at verses 1 to 4 and the crisis. And let's read these verses once again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, all the ites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. And here is the crux but I will not go with you. What's the reason for that? Well, you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on ornaments. So while God relented from destroying the Israelites because Moses pleaded for that, it appears that the crisis is not over. God basically tells Moses, you and the people, leave this place. I will help you get there, but, I will, but, you, but you will have to go without me because I've had enough. As an intercessor, Moses, as an intercessor between God and the people, Moses is fully invested in this, right? So whatever God decides to do with Israel becomes a personal crisis for him as well. Well, what is a crisis? A crisis is a crossroad 
where one decides which way to go. Do you fight? Do you fight on? Or do you flight? You say, basically, they call it fight or flight. Do you stick it out? Or do you run away? Do you give up? So what does he do? He seeks to fight on, fight it out. Because why? Because he wants more of God. And I think it will be the same for us as well. We will usually only want more of God at a time of crisis when things are not going so well. Because when things are going great, we are more distracted and more resistant to pay attention to God. But when things go bad, that is when we are all ears. Why is this? Why is this always, almost always the case? It is because we usually learn more in the darkness than we do in the light. We grow stronger in affliction in the storm than when the sun is shining and everything is going well. Because we come to grips with our own weakness when we are emptied of ourselves and we have nothing more to give. It is it is when we are emptied of ourselves that we turn to God to fill us with himself. Now most of us can handle a little bit of adversity and some of us can handle a lot of adversity but everyone, everyone has a breaking point. You look at all the great persons that God, the people that God used in scripture, that is exactly the case. That is the crisis, that is the setup. So what is it that Moses desired? What is it that that he wanted to, more of God. What is it? What are the aspects of God that he wanted more of? Well, first of all, his ways. In verses 12 to 13, his ways. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Let's let's just put this in context and remember that Moses, he was a bright spark. He had the highest level of intellectual training while growing up in Pharaoh's palace for the first 40 years of his life the highest possible training in, in the world at the time. But apart from the training in the faith that he received from his mother, all, all the, the people didn't know it was his mother, obviously, apart from that, all his training was secular. He knew all about the ways of the world and how it works, But now he realises how little he knew of God. Now in this context one can understand why he asks to know more of his ways. Please note that he is not not seeking 
God's opinion on the matter. He's not saying, God, now, what do you think about this? He's not asking for God's opinion. He's asking for God's truth on the matter. He's seeking God to teach him the way it is. Teaching his ways because his ways are based on truth. It is important to mention that Moses had to pass on. This wasn't just for Moses' own intellect, his own benefit. He wanted more of God's ways because he had to pass on this instruction to teach his people. More than that, we see evidence of this on the fact that God used him to write the first five books of the Bible to teach generations to come of God's people. The first five books of the Bible that sets everything up for the rest of Scripture, for the rest of the Christian world. And not just the Christian world, the laws of the land and any civilization that are based on, on the commandments that God has given us, they're the ones that have shown progress and very different to anything else. So, here he's asking for God's ways because he is teaching us, you and me as well, as we read scripture. And he would not be able to do this without God's divine inspiration. Someone else that God used to lead his people and write scripture was King David. And this is why he said in Psalm 25, verses 4 to 5, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God and my hope is in you all day long. How will you learn? Who is teaching you? Who is feeding your mind? Who is feeding, who is feeding you? Truth. Where are you getting it from? There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of people trying to fill your head in with stuff. Where are you getting it from? Well, these men of God obviously knew where to go. Guide me in your truth and teach me. I hope that that's our story as well. I hope that we pray that, that we seek his truth in his word. We have the Bible. Open it, read it, absorb it, eat it, drink it. Every day, just like you do food. It is for your nourishment. And in this, in this way, you will understand that the trials, the hard times, the difficulties that we go through, they are not meant to destroy you. God intends that you should use the hard times to draw, draw you nearer, deeper in communion to him. Because the strong have no need for God, or so they think. You will learn things about the Lord that you never knew when you thought that you were strong. It's when suddenly you find yourself on your back in a hospital bed that you have a lot more time to think about life and things. This is always God's way and we need to seek his ways in his word, always.
always. Next, what else does Moses want? He wants his presence in verses 14 to 17. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us, distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. It is in, in direct response to the first four verses that we read, it is the indirect response to that crisis there that Moses in effect says, if you are not going to come with us, then please just let us stay here. We have nowhere to go. If the Lord is not going with us, what's the point of going anywhere? And this has to be our greatest fear, right? That when we go, that the Lord will not go with us. That that we are on our own, left to fend for ourselves. Happens more often than we think. And even more so on, on, on a corporate level, as a, as a society, as, as you look at where society is, society at large, where we are, and the consequences of being abandoned by God is, is frightening. I'm not making this stuff up. Read Romans one twenty eight. Romans 1, three times the same expression, the same phrase is used. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would, so that they do what ought not be done. You want to go? Go. I'm not going to go with you, basically. And it was at the burning bush that Moses first encountered God's presence, wasn't it? Exodus chapter 3. And because of this, it was God's presence that he constantly sought And it was only because God was with them that they managed to leave Egypt. And it was only because God promised to go with him that Moses was willing to move forward. And the promise of Emmanuel, which means God with us, is fulfilled in Jesus. This is the ultimate fulfilment of the promise of God's presence with us. Anywhere with Jesus, nowhere without him. But even with this promise of God's presence, Moses wants more. He's still not done. Then he comes to his glory, verse 18. And then Moses said, show me, now show me your glory. Have you noticed how there's this steady build-up 
to this, this is the crescendo, this is, to, to this point. He has the audacity to ask something never asked before. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon calls this the greatest request a man ever made of God. And this prayer of Moses stands entirely alone. No other request can be compared to it. How could Moses have possibly asked for anything larger than this? This is as big as it gets. To see God's glory is to see God himself, the sum total of who he is. It was as if Moses is saying, let me see you as you really are, is what he's asking There's another sub-principle here, and that is that when we want more of God, it will come at a personal cost. Moses had no idea what he was asking for. He wanted to have so much more of God that he actually wanted to see God's glory, but that meant seeing God in his very essence, which is impossible because no sinful man can see God's holy essence and live. So Moses, what you're really saying is you want to die. Oh, no, 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 I wasn't asking that. Well, maybe it was. Because what? no sinful man can see the, the holiness of God. Uh, you have passages like Isaiah chapter 6 and... and not be aware of your own sinfulness, some, your own dirtiness before something, someone so clean and holy. I'm done for, Isaiah said. His light would blind us and, and then it would just totally consume us because you're standing before the one who created the, the universe, the, the stars that... Even 93 million miles away and we can feel the heat of the sun. Now think of God's holiness a trillion, quadrillion times more powerful than that. How many suns are there in the universe? Who gave the energy to the sun? Scientists can't work out why the sun is there and why it does what it does. How did it start? I've got all these speculations, but God put it there. That's what Genesis says. The big light. Well, God is bigger than that. In a crucial time in his life, Moses prayed, Show me your glory. Remember, it came after the children of Israel began to worship the golden calf, a very cheap substitute, saying, these are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. Here, this calf, made of gold, here are your gods. It came after he smashed the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It came after three 3,000 Israelites died 
in God's anger. He came after he had saved the nation from destruction. He came after he had received God's promise not to abandon his people. And after pleading and pleading and pleading before God, he is weak, he is spent, he is empty. He's, this ongoing crisis has, has drained him so much of his natural strength. He was emptied of himself that he was ready for God to fill him up. That's why he wanted God's glory. Have you ever been there? So, you've given up so much, lost so much, no much, nothing else. But you said, Lord, I don't know what else to do. And God says, here I am. And then God rewards, verses 19 to 23. God gives us his reward. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove, remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So what's God's answer? What is God going to do? His answer is a qualified yes. Moses will see God's goodness, but he will not see God's face. No one can see God and live. God offers to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock while it's passing by. He, he, he puts Moses in, in, in a crevice, in a rock, a very strategic place where Moses, he's, he's hiding in there and if you're in a crevice, you cannot see right or, or left. You can see only in, in one direction. It's not a multiple, multiple you know, 3D view here. It's not a panoramic view. It's very focused because God is trying to protect him. And even then, even in the, in, in the cleft of a rock, even in this crevice, God's hand is going to cover himself. And the glory of God would pass by. So this is a very strategic, gracious concealment of God's glory. It is more than than any man has ever asked before and it is more than any man had ever seen before. That is, of course, until Jesus in whom the transcendent God was revealed in human flesh. And the apostle said, we beheld his glory. How good is that? In the face of Jesus. The divine attribute that God was going to display before Moses was what? His goodness. His goodness. His goodness. Think with me for a a moment about the goodness of God. 
most of us don't really understand or fully comprehend or appreciate the goodness of God. Those of us who have lived most of our lives in Australia have been merrily going along with the path of a good life, the Aussie way that we have forgotten about the goodness of God. Well, how did you get that? Well, we saved a bit of money, a bit of hard work. We got it. What about the goodness of God? Oh, yeah, I'm not a religious man, you know. Just mum and dad taught me the good stuff, right and wrong, all that. But I'm not into all that superstitious stuff, you know. Merrily going along, forgotten about the goodness of God. The goodness of God in, in the fact that he gave us soaking rain past few days when the last summer was boiling hot and fires everywhere. The goodness of God. We have so much that the problem for us is not the shortage, the shortage of food, but the, the abundance and the choice of food that we have. What do you think the main problem in Australia is? It's not lack of food. Is people going on a diet. Why? Because there's so much food that people can't stop eating. Too much food. The very fact that we are here alive this morning when there is so much suffering as a result of this pandemic I think is a reminder of the goodness of God. One of God's uh, faithful missionaries, his name was uh, Alan Gardner, experienced many physical difficulties and hardships on the field, Uh, first in Africa, uh, then he went as a missionary to South America, to the very southern tip of South America. And and despite his troubles, he said, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. Listen, failure will not daunt me. In 1851, at the age of 57, um, him and and, and a group of other missionaries that were trying to establish a mission just on the other side of the Beagle Channel a few years ago, I stood on the other side, but uh, he was on the, on the southern island. And uh, you can imagine what it would have been like in 1851. They, he died, the others died, and he was the last one alive. He died of disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island in the southern tip of Latin America. And uh, when his body was found... His diary lay nearby. He bore the record in the diary of hunger, thirst, wounds, loneliness. And the last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he he tried. He had no strength left 
as he tried to write legibly and he said this. Listen to these words. He says, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How do you understand that? How do you understand that? Similarly, during a difficult time, King David wrote in Psalm 27, verse 13, our first reading, I remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Great words, right? And lastly, something else that Moses will need to be reminded of and uh, absorb and be nourished with is God's sovereignty, his sovereignty. This is again one of the great statements in scripture in verse 19. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Because if we want to see more of God, we need to recognise that he is above all things sovereign. And to us these words from God might sound somewhat arbitrary, even unjust. That God displays to Moses his sovereignty in and through his actions. The doctrine of God's divine sovereignty is more difficult to accept than it is to understand. Someone who is sovereign is a ruler. It deals with the truth that since God made the world and all that is in it, he has the right to everything he has made. He has the right to give life, to take life. He has a right to save us or to destroy us. And we cannot say anything. The thing is that this, this doctrine stirs up our pride inside of us, doesn't it? We want to be in control of our destiny. We, want, we are the ones who make plans and we say we're going to do this, we're going to do that and, and this is the fruit of my hands, of my labour, of my sacrifice. And, and, and when it comes to salvation... I somehow wish that I can earn his favour to work for it or at the very least consider myself a worthy recipient of his salvation because, Lord, you know how faithful I've been. I've preached your word. Lord, Lord, you know I deserve to be in heaven. No, you don't. Nor me, nor you. We actually deserve damnation. That's what the Bible says. It is all because of his goodness and his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ that we are here. And when you understand that God is under no obligation to us, he has the right to deny our prayers. Even we come before him and pray, but he can say no. That's his priority. That, that's his sovereign. That, and then when he says no, we're, we're disappointed, obviously, but we have to accept the fact that, Lord, you are sovereign. And this is why we need to 
put together God's goodness as God's sovereignty together in, in, in one and understand that. And it's only when we do that that we can contemplate his glory. If you take sovereignty alone, you will not get a complete picture of who he is. He will appear to you mean and capricious. But then when you speak of his goodness, then you will understand and appreciate the character of God. When Moses was born, God's sovereignty and goodness was displayed in a basket floating on the Nile, wasn't it? Sovereignty, goodness. After he was exiled in the desert for decades, God's sovereignty and goodness was displayed in a burning bush at his calling. And now when he's at his wit's end, Moses dares to pray a magnificent prayer to the Lord asking for more than anyone has ever asked before and he received more than any man has ever received before. Yet both the prayer and the answer came in a time of crisis through a revelation of Moses' own weakness. There was nothing more. He had nothing more of himself. Now this has to be an encouragement for us, doesn't it? Do you want to get closer to God? What do you want to see? Or what do you want? I mean, do you want, do you think God is like a Santa Claus granting you all your wishes? You know, rub the lamp a few times? He's not that. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's a sovereign Lord. Go deeper, go deeper than that. What do you want to see? You want to see his ways, his presence, his glory, his goodness, his sovereignty, or all of the above? And more. May God give us a a spiritual hunger, even in a world of plenty that we live in, that we find ourselves in, even in the land of plenty, as the song goes. May he give us a spiritual hunger, less of us, less of this world and hunger more and more of himself. May God bless us.